I'm sure our dear friends at Gracious Savior are going to miss that. No doubt in my mind. If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, we just say you are worthy. You are worthy of our all. And Lord, on occasions like today, it should not feel unusual to us. Lord, sadly, too many churches have wanted to build their own kingdom and not focused on yours. And so, Lord, this dividing it by multiplication method, Lord, has been the way that you have taught through your word. And, Lord, it should be something that we should experience as being normal in the life of a church. And so, Lord, we pray that as we delve into your word this morning, as we hear uh, what the words of your writer and your servant Luke has written to the church today, We pray, Lord, that in the midst of it, that we would not lose sight of what our overall goal is. Jesus Christ proclaimed throughout the world. That is our purpose. And so, Lord, whether it is here, whether it is on the other side of the world in Indonesia, or whether it's just two streets and two blocks over from us, Jesus Christ reigns. And we want to be able to fulfill this calling of the great commission that you've called us to. And may we do so with joyful hearts, Lord, recognizing that you are worthy. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, as you've heard, this is a historic moment in the life of our church. This morning, Providence Baptist will commission and initiate its third church plant within three years. Even though this is our third one, this one is significantly different. When we sent out Robert and Lindsay Smith to plant Grace Fellowship in Cowan, Tennessee, we planted a church outside our state. When we sent Zach and Morgan Carter to plant Redeemer Church in downtown Huntsville, it was outside of our community and primarily made up of people outside of our congregation. This morning, we will be commissioning a significant portion of our body. 30 members of Providence will plant a church much closer to us, less than five miles. We are doing this not because there are significant differences between us. Please don't misunderstand. This is not a church split. We are doing this because our city has grown so large, we need more churches and a greater gospel influence to meet the needs of our population. So while we are excited, we will also feel some grief at this parting, and maybe even just a little bit of fear. And in order to comfort us, we need to go to the Word of God and allow the Spirit to speak to us this morning as He launches this new church. And to do that, I'd like for us to to look at a church-planning church in the book of Acts. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. This is found on page 920 of your pew Bible. Yes, you're not getting off that easily with just three verses this morning. And I am going to ask you to use your Bibles this morning and not just your worship guide as we're going to move very quickly through four chapters this morning. You will find it beneficial to have the Word open before you. Now, before I get into the text, I want to draw your attention to two points of general understanding. First, when one studies the book of Acts, we need to be very careful how we interpret what we are reading. Acts is a historical book. Acts is a historical book, and much of the time, the book is describing what happened, not seeking to tell us how or why a certain event happened, nor that we should expect it to happen again in the same way today. In biblical interpretation, we call this descriptive 
versus prescriptive. Sometimes the scriptures tell us specifically what we all must or must not do as members of the body of Christ. That is prescriptive. And sometimes the Bible merely reveals what transpired, meaning something special or supernatural occurred, but it is not meant to be a regular occurrence within the church. So, for example, in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, it describes two church attenders named Ananias and Sapphira who want to make a show of their generosity, telling everyone that they were giving the whole of the profits that, that they had made from selling a piece of property when actual they had kept some of it back for themselves. The Holy Spirit struck them dead for lying to the church. Now, prescriptively, we might could infer from that story that it is good to give to the poor and not lie to the church. But I don't think prescriptively we should kill everyone who doesn't give enough to the church. At least our financial ministry team lead, Mike Ingram, hasn't instituted that yet. I, for one, am very grateful for that. On that particular occasion in Acts chapter 5, the author Luke is describing that event. He is not prescribing it for the rest of the church for all time. Much of what we will be reviewing this morning is descriptive, but I think we'll be able to infer some common themes that repeatedly show up in the New Testament that we can apply to our current situation of launching a church today. My second point of general understanding is this. The text will be focusing on two church planters of Paul and Barnabas. And you might infer from that that we're only speaking of the two elders, Brian and Tommy, whom we are sending out to lead Gracious Savior Church. But that should not be the emphasis alone. A church is made up of many members. It's not just one or two individuals. The church has leaders, but it also has followers and fellow disciples who are to serve one another and serve the lost while also holding the leadership accountable. So what we're reading this morning should be applicable not only to Brian and Tommy, but also to those who are going to form Gracious Savior and those who are remaining here at Providence. I'm going to beg you to listen well and not think, well, I'm not an elder, so this doesn't apply to me. Or I'm not going out with Gracious Savior, therefore this doesn't apply to me. All of Scripture is inspired and useful for teaching, correction, and training in righteousness. Amen? So this should be for all of us. I am trusting the Lord is going to continue to grow both churches so you who remain at Providence might be called to plant another church in the near future, which would be likely if our goal is to win this city for Christ and not build the kingdom of Providence. So this is how we're going to approach the text this morning. We're going to see three movements here. We will first look at the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 11. That will be the sending church. Then we're going to see the call to plant additional churches from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And then we will conclude by looking at the ministry of those church planters in Acts 13 through 14 by making some general observations. Now, I'm not going to have an application section this morning because I think those are going to be pretty obvious as we move through the text. So again, our headings here are the church at Antioch, those who were called, and the work that they did. So let's look here at the end of chapter 11. Antioch 
is located in what is now southern Turkey, just off the coast of the Mediterranean. It would have been a major trade hub if one was traveling by land from Israel through Turkey and on over to Rome. We can see at the end of chapter 11 that the church was formed after the stoning of the martyr Stephen in Jerusalem. People were responding to the gospel as it left Jerusalem. And what is shocking is that not only were Jews responding, but so were the Greeks. And as such, the leaders in the church at Jerusalem heard about this, and they sent Barnabas to teach and disciple these new converts. So it may very well be that Barnabas was the first pastor at Antioch. From verses 24 through 26, we see the work had grown so much that Barnabas traveled to Tarsus to recruit Saul, who will later be known as the Apostle Paul, to assist him in this work. And the work is exceedingly fruitful. They teach and disciple together for at least a year, as the text says, to a great many people. Now, usually when that phrase is used, it means there were too many to count. But it was also at Antioch throughout this work that the followers of Jesus were becoming known as Christians, or literally, little Christs, which was most likely a pejorative term, meaning a put-down, as in, look at all those little Christs trying to act like their leader. But the disciples embraced it. They loved being known by their leader's name, Jesus. Now, it would be easy to miss the remaining verses of the chapter as being descriptive when Agabus prophesied that Jerusalem would undergo a great famine. But there is a greater point to be made with it than just this prophecy alone. The primarily Gentile church at Antioch felt connected to the primarily Jewish church at Jerusalem. So much so that they responded with compassion and taking up a relief offering for them. These churches, while differentiating themselves by their locale, saw themselves as being part of the greater whole here. They saw their mission as being the same for one another and were greatly concerned for the health of one another. The church at Antioch had now become large enough to assist the church at Jerusalem. Now hold on to this nugget of knowledge of of churches being concerned for the help of one another. Keep that in mind as we move on because it's going to appear again in the text. Now let's turn to Acts chapter 13 where the church at Antioch appears once again. Now there were at the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now there are five observations that I want to make here concerning the call of Paul and Barnabas. First, the church leadership had grown. There were now five men who were leading the church. And it's significant that Barnabas is named first. Most likely he was the primary pastor at Antioch among their elders. Now I point this out because the church was healthy. It would not be strained too badly by losing the talents of two of their leaders. They had a sufficient number of leaders to send two of them away. It was a healthy church with healthy resources, which leads us to our second observation. This church had regular worship. It was while they were in the process of worshiping that they received this calling from God. 
God does amazing things through healthy churches. That is why a church's health and worship is essential. And the caveat is the same in reverse. Unhealthy churches do great damage not only to its members, but to the mission of the gospel as well. But healthy churches do great things for the Lord. Now, I'm going to make a brief excursus here and talk about fasting. The spiritual discipline of fasting, or going without food, is usually found in the New Testament under the descriptive category. We are not mandated by the text to fast. However, we do see it practiced regularly throughout the text, even past the resurrection. The purpose of a fast was to demonstrate one's reliance upon the Lord. It was a way of saying, I love the God who provides not just his provision. Therefore, I'm going to demonstrate my faith in him by going without. That could be applied to to food or to work on the Sabbath. And in principle, we could apply it to media fast in our own present day. Now, while I would never order or mandate that you fast, I will say that churches that fast regularly tend to be willing to part with material things much easier than those who do not. These are Christians who are used to giving up their stuff for the Lord. They have already been tested in their faith, knowing that God sustains them in lean periods. Now, I throw that out for your own edification in the future. But let's get back here to the text. We have five leaders in a healthy church. They probably are thinking, well, why do anything different if it's not broken? This was a great situation and comfortable. And that is when the Spirit calls out Barnabas and Paul to do his bidding. And I would think that both these guys felt pretty secure where they were. Why did they need to be the ones to leave? But that leads us to the next observation. Their allegiance was to their God, not to their church. Their allegiance was to their God, not to their church. If God says, you must go, then you must go. It is his church. It is his mission. It is his ministry. It doesn't belong to us. We exist to serve him. So these men had to obey. But that brings us to the flip side of this observation. And I'm making this number four. While these men must obey God to go, the church must make the sacrifice to allow them to go. Barnabas had been with him from the start. He was probably the primary encourager of the group. Surely, Lord, you wouldn't want to take away our Barnabas from us. And then as we see the the ministry of Paul play out in the rest of Acts, he might have been the most gifted teacher among them. Surely, Lord, you wouldn't want to take our Paul away from us. Surely these men could be much more productive here training and sending from Antioch. And there's most likely the same sentiment among us. Surely you wouldn't take our Eric Lott. Surely you wouldn't take our Philip Rigsby or our Pam Giles or or our Laura Hogue. But they, just like Paul and Barnabas, belong to the Lord, not to us. And if the Lord calls, we must release them into his service. And yes, that will make us uncomfortable as well. And then the last observation as the church joyfully sends them to complete their mission. There is prayer, more fasting, 
commissioning, which is the laying on of hands, and most likely some financial support. The mission of Paul and Barnabas became the mission at the church of Antioch. The mission of Paul and Barnabas became the church at Antioch's mission. Now, we're going to see more of that towards the end of the sermon, so hang on to that thought as well. So let's quickly do an overview of the ministry of the called. Now, all of this activity can be placed under one objective for Paul and Barnabas, the ministry of multiplication. The ministry of multiplication. These men were merely expanding the same exact ministry that was occurring at Antioch. We're about to see that there was no innovation, no special marketing, no bait and switch like church for people who don't like church. They did precisely what they had done in Antioch, which is rely upon the proclamation of the gospel and trust the Spirit to do the work. Now let me briefly point out eight traits that demonstrate their ministry was consistently what it had been before. And they will be quick, so write fast or you'll need to re-listen to the sermon online here, okay? Number one, they have to confront false teaching and go against the culture around them. They have to confront false teaching and go against the culture around them. When they get to the city of Salamis on Cyprus in verses 6 through 11, there's a false teacher or false prophet there named Bar-Jesus. In Greek, his name is Elymas. He appears to have had much influence on the government authority. And in order to gain a hearing of the Bible, Paul had to confront this false teaching directly, just as they had to confront false teaching when it entered Antioch. Churches will always go against the grain of the culture around them. Always. Number two, they preached the same gospel. They preached the same gospel. When they arrive at Pisidian Antioch, it's a different Antioch than the one they originated, like Athens, Georgia, Athens, Alabama are different from Athens, Greece, right? We have the first recorded sermon here of the Apostle Paul. And guess what was the central point of the message? Jesus, the Christ who saves us from our sins. Look at what Paul says in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Paul and Barnabas are preaching the same exact gospel that was preached back in Antioch. Number three, look back into the sermon there to see where they draw their message from. What do you know? It's from the Bible. The message came from the Scriptures. Not only does Paul do an overview from Abraham to David, but you can look at the footnotes of your Bible and see that he quotes from seven places in the Old Testament. Paul is preaching from the Bible, trusting that the Spirit will do the work from his word, just as he did in Antioch. Number four, they had to suffer. Number four, they had to suffer. Starting in verse 50, we see that Paul and Barnabas had to endure persecution. When you begin to preach the gospel, the culture around you will become hostile. Satan doesn't like it when you invade his territory. So listen well, future members of Gracious Savior. You too will have to endure hardship as well. It may begin by you just starting out being uncomfortable. But Satan will seek to create divisions among you. 
He will desire to get you to capitulate to the culture and go with the flow rather than standing for the truth. But remember that the church at Antioch was formed out of persecution. And you also will produce many for the kingdom through your tribulations, just as chapter 14, verse 22 teaches here. Number five, they welcome the lost. They welcome the lost. In the face of such hardship, there will be some who will reject you, possibly even those who would call themselves Christians. But you are called to welcome those whom God brings to you. In chapters 13, 46 through 49, it is the Gentiles who were welcomed into the church. They would have been considered the outcast. And you also, gracious Savior and Providence, you are to welcome the repentant into your family, regardless of their background, just like what was occurring at Antioch and at Pisidian Antioch. You must be discerning, but you must not be judgmental. You must welcome those seeking repentance and endure with them to the end as they continue their path in the faith. So you must welcome the lost. Number six, you must resist the desire to be adored by the world, especially your leadership. You must resist the desire to be adored by the world. When you turn to chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are allowed to conduct a few miracles at Lystra. And the population begins to worship them as gods, uh, the gods Zeus and Hermes. And it would have been so easy for these two men just to, to soak up all that adulation from the city. But they resisted to the point of being persecuted. Members of gracious Savior and Providence, be careful of putting your pastors on a pedestal. Be careful of putting your pastors on a pedestal. I'm not too worried about that for me, but with Brian leaving, it won't be long till we'll see him, you know, signing books at the trade shows and you know, seeing Brian on, hanging out on the commercials and stuff. But he's shaking his head now. But you cannot put us up on a pedestal. Pastors, you have to be careful of thinking that you are entitled to adulation. History is littered with examples of churches who idolize their leaders only to end in the destruction of their reputation and the destruction of their church bodies. As a congregation, you must resist being admired by your community that you are the happening church where you compromise the Bible. If there is any glory to be had, please let it go to the Lord alone. I would hate to see self-promotion on billboards and TV ads where the church appears to be more important than the gracious Savior that it claims to serve. Number seven, Paul and Barnabas made disciples who make disciples. Paul and Barnabas made disciples who make disciples. Look at chapter 14, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with every prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Paul and Barnabas made their way back to Antioch. And as they did so, they strengthened the disciples behind them and appointed leaders. 
They became churches who discipled others and no doubt planted other churches themselves. They made disciples who made disciples, just like the church did at Antioch. And number eight, our final trait. Paul and Barnabas still saw themselves as part of the greater Christian community. In verse 26, they returned to Antioch to give reports about what God had done through this ministry and through the prayers of the saints at Antioch. And that became a blessing to the church of Antioch. Gracious Savior, we are so looking forward to hearing what God is going to do through you this upcoming year at our 2024 missions banquet. Allow us to feel as though we are part of you and your ministry. Give us that privilege as we send you out and support you financially, and we pray for you. Now, there is one final observation I want to conclude with here. It's an important one. It doesn't fall into all these other categories, but it's an important one for us to know here. Paul and Barnabas returned to the church at Antioch. Listen to that again. Paul and Barnabas returned to the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch did not collapse after these two gifted individuals left. It was still going strong. It was still blessing its community. And as you can read in the next chapter, it was still clarifying doctrine and teaching with the intention of making disciples who make disciples and will even support two church planting efforts by the end of chapter 15. If anything, we see different churches here rejoicing together and seeking to improve one another in their association. The same power that initiated these churches is the same power that sustains them. Let me say that again. The same power that initiated these churches is the same power that sustains them. My brothers and sisters, launching Gracious Savior. Let me plead for gospel purity among you. Let me plead for standing upon the word of God and loving others from that alone. Let me plead that you endure for the sake of the gospel, that you not give up on the repentant ones that come to you, that you disciple for the purpose of multiplication. Preach Christ crucified. And if you do that, then you will become a church that plants churches. You will be a bright star in the crown of our gracious Savior. And people that remain at Providence, our work is not done. Next Sunday, we're going to have some empty pews. We need to fill them, not grieve that they're unoccupied. Let's not make this sacrifice of sending our friends out in vain, but let's use it as the opportunity to continue building the kingdom, making disciples day by day. For the work is not done. There are more lost people in Huntsville and around the world than three churches can keep up with. Let us do this with honor and sacrifice for our King. Let us do this the Lord's way so that it might succeed with His blessing. For the work that we will do is going to be the same work that's being done right now in Cowan, Tennessee. It's the same work that's being done in downtown Huntsville. It will be done in Madison. It will be done in Monrovia. We must do this God's way by His grace and for His glory alone. We all must preach Christ crucified. That is our goal. And God chooses to use the vehicle of the church 
to proclaim his message to the masses. If that is the case, we need more churches. This is not enough. We need more resources. We've got people that are leaving that, that are going with Gracious Savior, and I praise God that they are going with them, but they are very good contributors to our general offering. We've got people that are going that are gifted in the areas to be able to serve that need to have people come in behind them to serve. And it's good that we send out our best. What did Antioch do? Who did they send out? Barnabas and Paul, their best. So what we're doing today is right. It is good. It is the way of the gospel. And it is the way of being able to promote the bride of Christ, God's glorious church. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would see what we are doing today as being a common way, Lord, that you work to expand your kingdom. And Lord, it is you who are doing the the expanding. We're just merely following and obeying. Lord, too long, too long churches get to a place where they feel comfortable, where they feel at ease, and they just don't want to push themselves. They just don't want to to grow, but they just want to keep falling back and and to thinking, well, somebody else will take care of that. Lord, I'm going to ask, who? Who will take care of it if not us? We belong to you. You redeemed us. We were bought with a price to glorify God with our bodies. And so, Lord, I pray that you would cause these two churches that are getting ready to start, that are launching from one church, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to arise and see the mission that is before us. There are people who desperately need hope right now. People who have no idea that they are on their way to hell. And they need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. People, Lord, who are so discouraged by events that are surrounding them, they don't know that you're coming back again to restore all things. Oh, Lord, give us this vision to go out and to see your name proclaimed and that we can go out and say, yes, Jesus Christ reigns even today. We pray this because Jesus has completed the work already. Amen. I invite you to take your order, worship.